0: This will be the second recitation episode, and we'll focus on chapters 11 through 20. Throughout this interval, it's a lot of setup, where you also get to know a decent deal about some of the main characters, including Pierre, Prince Andre, members of the Rostov family, as well as the Kuragin family. Back in chapter 11, you are introduced to, more in-depth, Vira Rostov, who is the unfavored Rostov child. She's the oldest, but the most distant to her parents of the four children. She seems alone, unable to find true love, and there does seem to be an intelligence or a cunning aspect to her. There is a demonstrable animosity between both Vera and Nikolai and Vera and Natasha, her younger siblings. Tolstoy even describes her as having an unpleasant effect on everyone around her. And you can contrast this with Natasha and Nikolai, who despite their younger age, have close and even loving relationships with Boris and Sonia. Also early on in this section, Anna Drubetskaya is forced to reveal to her old friend, Countess Rostova, her dire financial straits and her need of some type of aid for her son Boris, who, because of Anna, has made his way into the Imperial Guard. He needs 500 rubles for supplies. Anna tells the countess that she is forced to try to make an appeal to Boris's godfather, who is the elderly and dying Count Bezukov. In so many words, she says it's going to be a humiliating experience, but she's going to go there essentially hat in hand. At this point, her discretionary income is described as being about a 25-ruble note. To give you an idea of what 500 rubles could buy, in another section, Count Ilya Rostov notes that he obtained one of his serfs who trained under a French chef for about a 1,000 rubles. So after Anna leaves, the countess is left with this thought in her head of whether she has an obligation to take care of her friend and the son who the countess has helped raise in her household. She decides that she will try to provide... Horace with the money he needs and she summons her husband and tells him that she needs money and without hesitating or asking for what Count Rostov agrees. This is a wonderful way from a writer's perspective to get you to see what type of person and husband Ilya Rostov is. Very caring and giving and devoted to his family. He even gives his wife more than she asked for In fact, he tells his servant, a financial manager of the household, to get the Countess 700 rubles in new crisp bills. When Countess Rostova finally gives the money over to Anna, it's quite an emotional scene. The two cry over their situation, their friendship, their age, that one can help the other, and also it's noted at their lost youth. Before this money is given... Anna and her son do make the trek to Count Bezukhov's, even though it highly embarrasses Boris. When Anna arrives, she quickly learns that the Count was in no state to ask him of anything. She does run into Prince Vassili and thanks him for his help with Boris and getting him his position in the army. As she speaks with him, Boris goes to visit Pierre to deliver him a message to invite him to the Rostov household. And the carefree Pierre eventually becomes impressed with both the stoic and forthright nature of young Boris. And Boris was one of the only visitors Pierre received, as he was generally neglected by the rest of the family. The contrast between Pierre and Boris is quite notable. Pierre, at his father's expense, got to go abroad to the great cities of Europe, to see the world and get educated under private tutors, to become enamored in what was the age of Napoleon, who he, and many other from different levels of society, saw as the embodiment of the then-modern age and progress. That Napoleon was a man who could rise from the rank, the low rank of Ensign, all the way to General and then Emperor, is something that inspired countless daring and dashing young men to reach for the stars, and to rise as far as their ability could take them. This was an age of monarchies falling, Peasants breaking out of serfdom, the construction of the concept of the nation-state, and the masses gaining a level of political power. While Pierre was out there experiencing this all, Boris was dutifully in Moscow. He was neither unhappy nor envious, and he is grateful to pursue his position in the Imperial Guard. When Pierre wanted to discuss with Boris Napoleon's latest attacks and military efforts, Boris had to claim that he knew nothing about them, but his world was filled with keeping track of the gossip in Moscow society. And he admitted that Pierre is at the center of that gossip in terms of him being a candidate to receive Count Bezukhov's estate. This gives Pierre, for the first time, the notion that that could be a possibility. Much of the action in the central part of this section, around chapter 15, involves the Rostov dinner in Moscow. Tolstoy brings you through each stage of the magnificent aristocratic affair. In the beginning is some of the men sitting around talking about politics and the emperor's declaration of war. Everyone's offering an opinion but the actual conflict still seems quite far away. Here, Tolstoy introduces you to a number of Russian officers of ethnic German descent. These were immigrants who left German lands over the years and became dedicated to the Tsar and his empire. They speak with German accents and see Napoleon as the greatest threat to traditional society and the continental arrangement. One of the old men with a humorous bent about him, Shinshin, notes how Napoleon stopped Austria and he expects Russia's turn is next. Another, Lieutenant Alphonse Berg, who appears to be suiting Vera Rostova for her connections, discusses how the military can be personally profitable. Berg is the type of guy who told Vera that love is an emotion of the heavens. So contrast the attitude of love and devotion that Vera's father has, Ilya, for his wife, in terms of being so giving, and the one Lieutenant Berg displays to someone who just might become his fiancée. Perhaps being treated so negatively and never being given any affection by her love interest or her family led Vera to point out that Sonia should never expect to marry her brother Nikolai, as her mother, Countess Rostova, wouldn't approve the countess would expect much more from a match, not someone who was basically a ward of the Rostov family. Hearing this absolutely devastated Sonya, who went off to cry in a quiet part of the estate, but she was found by Natasha Rostova, who provided comfort like a true sister. The actual dinner had all the pomp and pageantry that you could ever expect in such an affair. Guests would walk in in pairs, there was a battalion of servants arranging the silverware and chairs and tables. Sonya noticed Nikolai was partnered with Julie Karagin, and this hurt her deeply and brought about jealous feelings. The men and women sat at opposite ends of the table. On one side, enthusiasm over the war seemed to be boiling over. That was the men's side, where they have no grasp on the horrors of war that lie ahead. When Nikolai is asked whether he believes in the war effort, he states that his country must die or conquer. It's something he would not have volunteered, but it gives you an idea of his sense of duty. There also comes a point where Natasha and Nikolai sing for those gathered around them, and they each have beautiful, entertaining voices. This is the piece of War and Peace, and the knight moves on to dancing. At her mother's request, Natasha went over to Pierre and asked him to dance. It was a big moment for her when Pierre extended his large arm and she took hold of it for an escort. Memorably, the host of the entire night, Ilya Rostov, put on a masterful performance of an Eastern European folk dance, ironically called by an English name, the Daniel Cooper He put all his energy, passion, and spirit into it, and as he was dancing, his entire crowd of guests cheered him on as Ilya enticed the folk band to play faster and faster and faster. In a bit of irony, his partner was Maria Dmitrievna, who is kind of a large woman not known for her dancing or her figure for dancing. She bounced in rhythm and place as Ilya pranced around her. It was an incredible feast that was even capped with pineapple ice cream. This section then moves on to and ends with the solemnity of Count Bezikov's final moments at his mansion. He had another attack of illness, and his doctor's consensus was that it was just a matter of hours. There seemed to be an army of clergy performing the necessary rites. He was surrounded by his family, as well as influential well-wishers who made their way to the Count's estate. Prince Vasily is one of those relatives present, and he realizes that he's in line to inherit legally through his wife. However, he is aware that the Count, the previous winter, drew up testamentary papers that could be an obstacle to that. Significantly, it appears that the Count prepared a petition that legitimizes Pierre and makes him the heir to the entire estate. So Prince Vasily schemes the best as he can he reaches out to the count's eldest niece, Caterina. He relays that both him and the nieces would be normally expected to inherit, but for that will or papers that might be somewhere around the house, possibly destroyed or possibly where they could be accessed and then destroyed. It takes some time, but Katerina eventually gets the message and she's willing to try to do what's necessary to inherit herself. So she tells Prince Vasily the count keeps those papers in the inlaid portfolio underneath his pillow. Prince Vasily had tried to convince Katerina that what they're doing is for the count's benefit in that he probably made this directive in a moment of delirium and he would never in his right mind want to pass over those who have loved him for so long. And the nieces or princesses and Prince Vasily were more around the count for the last ten years when Pierre was studying in Europe. But Katerina, sees through this. At the very end of this section, Pierre gets to be with his father. He's pretty much lifeless and it hurts Pierre very much to see his once powerful and strong father this way. He's taking cues and being guided through the last rites and when to kiss his father's hand and when to assist his father from Anna who keeps reminding Pierre that she will look after his interests. Pierre has noticed a change in the way others perceive him. It's now with a level of awe and respect. It's quite unnerving. Pierre is at the center of attention, and everybody there, friends, family, clergy, servants, realize that this will essentially be the last moment between father and son. And there is a moment where the Count's eyes get fixed upon Pierre, and his mouth twitches, and there's the perception that he's trying to communicate something, but only a hoarse sound comes out of his mouth. The Count saw the sadness of Pierre in response, and with that the Count gave his son the hint of a smile, and then the Count was turned on his side by the servants, and then he dozed off. One of the most important questions the first 20 chapters have led up to is will Pierre get to inherit his father's estate? Another question you're meant to consider is what will happen to the youthful, loving relationships between Boris and Natasha and Nikolai and Sonia, especially now that Boris and Nikolai are being mobilized. The boys are going to have their eyes open to the world at large. They're going to be in the military with a band of brothers against a common enemy. And those remaining home will deal with the challenges an invasion can bring. Quite amazingly, Tolstoy is writing about the beauty and the humanism inherent of a brave people resisting a foreign invader. And in the third decade of the 21st century, it was Russia playing the role of unwelcome invader to a direct neighbor. Tolstoy, through his experience in war and also through his devotion to scripture, would have easily recognized the evil of directing military forces to level cities and to march in to conquer, and to have, as he describes in his famous second epilogue, one group of Christians attack another with such inhumanity.